0: Keep going, one more. All right, now you see what in the world I'm talking about. All right, so, just so you know, all those stats were in there for you and everything. There was a whole lot of stuff. Anyway, that's the sword we picture, right? Something that would make Tim Allen grunt and say that you could cut the bed off a pickup truck in one swing and cut a man in half, right? That's what we pick because that's the sword that Jesus tells us we are going to use to defend ourselves. The word that is in the Bible is "makhaira." That's the sword we use. It's not the word for broadsword. It is the word that is classified as a large knife or small sword. Most most likely, it's called a dagger. This is the picture of it. We're doing good now. So the makhaira was used for close-in combat. This isn't your cavalry. This is when things get up close and personal blade is about 20 to 24 inches on average the blade is either straight or curved the reason it's only 20 to 24 inches is because honestly if you plunge something 20 to 24 inches into the human body from any given direction you're going to hit something that's needed for life okay that's the point of it curved straight blade straight blade can be used for swinging and slashing as well as stabbing curved blade choose for slashing Initially, you think two for one is better. Why don't they always just make them straight? But if you're swinging a sword or a dagger and you hit a guy in the arm and you get through the skin and the muscle and all that because you're you're swinging hard, you're going to hit the bone and then it's going to stop. And then you're going to have to drag through that and it's going to take a lot more energy. But if you curve that blade and your main attack is a slash, it's going to hit. And that curved blade is just going to keep on going around important things and hitting some more important things so are you more likely to stab or slice? If you're more likely to slice, you take the curve blade. But that's the same with us. When we get into our Bible, we have to know what it's used for, where we can go to get the resource that we need to pull out the right machaira for the right situation. They're not all the same. So, next slide is, how did Jesus use the sword? Well, he's our teacher. He's our sensei, the grand master of Bible Jitsu, whatever you want to call it. That's what he is. And he used the sword. He used it the first time. He's going to use it again. So we should probably look at how he used it. Now, an interesting thing. People want science. People want this. People want that. Well, there's a thing called the nuclear protein. What you see on your screen is what has been called the nuclear protein. This is laminin. If anybody doesn't know what laminin does in your body, it is the glue that holds all of your cells together. With this here, this here protein, if you lose it, you turn to mush. You're just a pile of oozing stuff, okay? Laminin is the glue that holds your body together. You can Google it, that's where I got this image. On the next slide, you will see it where some Christians have updated it. They even put Jesus hanging on the protein. But the middle is an electron microscope of actual laminin within the cells of your body. This speaks volumes into the fact that Jesus spoke everything into existence. Why is it then irrational for us to think that he can speak it out of existence? We have no problem with Genesis 1, but we really get upset when he starts tearing stuff down with his voice. Why is he allowed to build and not tear down? If he is the glue that is holding you together, Zechariah tells us that at the return of the Messiah, he doesn't know who that is yet, With the breath of his mouth, he will consume those who have rejected him. He says, I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. We're seeing this right here. So I ask you, Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Both life and death you will eat its fruit. So think about this. Zechariah says that on the day of his return, the plague, because he can't see the Messiah, it's actually slaughter because we know now that he is the one actually doing it. Remember, what does it say? The skin will melt from their bodies, their eyes and tongues shall dissolve within their mouth and the sockets of their eyes. That's the enemy's only. And yet we just looked at scientific proof that if Jesus unbound the cross within your cells, you would turn into a pile of goo. He's in the science. He's he's there for us to see. He's in your DNA. He's in every one of the cells of your body. We're just sometimes so proud that we don't want to accept it. And pride is the very thing that toppled the head angel. Remember, that's a title. But Lucifer, when he was over the other ones. So you can fight to save people. You can fight to hurt people. It depends on what side you're on. But I find it interesting that those who could see the truth and deny it will lose their eyes. Those who could speak the truth and refuse to do so will lose their tongue. And that the body is the temple of Christ. And that when you don't want to hold the right God, he will melt that temple down and go on without it. The very three things that he talks about are also in how we handle the word and whether or not we accept it and accept him. He's not hiding it. We just have feelings that we don't like to express. And that's gotten us into problems. So again, how did Jesus wield that sword? Well, the first temptation we see in Matthew, Satan comes before him and he says, Now the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Remember, 40 days of fasting, he's hungry, and Satan goes, Well, he's just a man. I know how this works. Tempt him with hunger. Nope, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by the word, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He got that from Deuteronomy 8 3. That's the first slice. It's the first Machaira swung, and it's actually defensive. Then he goes on, in Matthew 4. Remember, he's on the mountain. If you are the son of God, throw yourself, or the temple. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. It is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord thy God. Deuteronomy 6:16. Second Makaira. Second defensive. Okay, I've tried flesh. I've tried the Spirit. Let's just give him everything he wants and I'll go for what I want. We go to the mountain. All these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Remember, he's looking at the nations. Remember, Tower of Babel, nations are separated. If you remember and go back and look, Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9. The nations were given to different ranking heavenly beings. He owns them all except for the nation of Israel. That's what he's offering him right here. And he says this is the win-win, this is everything I got. He swings it at Jesus, and Jesus goes, away with you. Away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you, wor- shall you serve. Deuteronomy 6.13, he used no more than two chapters of the Bible in all of his defenses. In fact, he used six and eight. And he only used three verses. This one actually comes with a command. He took three shots. Now, I wholly admit, he wasn't swinging for the fences. I foresee it as a like, little gnat, like, get this thing away from me. Go. And it says he was frustrated. and It came until he, he went and so waited for a more opportune time to, to tempt Jesus again. However, Revelation 19, if you will, and a half, because it's halfway through that chapter, when he comes back again, he will be swinging for the fences. So we're back here, and the sword of the Spirit, which the Word, which is the Word of God. So we've looked at the word sword. If you've learned nothing from any of my studies, we don't stop with one word. So let's just dig into the word word, because why not, right? There's in fact three different words for the word word, and they all have different meanings. The first one is gafe. That means book. Any amount of pages you sandwich between two other ends, gaffé. It's, in fact, where we get the word that we get for quill or graphite, for pencil lead. That's where this comes from, because we write books down in pencil. However, if you use a gaffé to fight against Satan, you are literally taking a book to a knife fight or an arrow fight because he's shooting flaming arrows, and you are literally throwing the book at him, but it's not going to do crap. And then we wonder, why am I not doing so good? Well, because you're using the wrong darn book. How about Logos? The word Logos is, in fact, the Bible. No other book qualifies as Logos. Now, we have something that looks like a sword. and We can slash back and forth. However, you're not going to kill the enemy with the wooden sword you used to play with as an eight-year-old boy. And so it's not as efficient as we can get. It's kind of like if a coworker is spreading rumors about you and you throw out psalm thirty eight seven and I picked that one because of a joke. if you YouTube Tim Hawkins and that, his favorite bible verse, it is very funny. But if a coworker is spreading rumors about you stealing company property and you throw out psalm thirty eight seven which in fact is for my loins are full of inflammation and there is no soundness in my flesh, you're not getting very far. This does not lack the peace that surpasses all understanding. It is quite the opposite. So you can't just grab any verse of the Bible and start swinging madly. What you're looking for is what is called rhema. Rhema is a word of God to you through His word. This is where the Holy Spirit starts talking to you when you're reading the word and you can read the same thing in two different points of the year and all of a sudden it says two different things but it never contradicts itself because it's speaking directly to you as your life is in that point in time. That is what we're always looking for but a lot of times we get logos because we want to get through our Bible reading that day. Yep, I'm a good Christian God, I did my Bible reading for the day. I didn't hear anything from you, but I read the words. But if you get a rhema, now it's sharp. Now we can swing. So, you have to know the word before you get into the Bible because you're not going to train with a gun or a knife and take out a well-trained enemy who's been doing it for thousands of years by just opening the book and trying to use it. So, This is kind of like the guy who has never fired a gun. And he decides to watch the entire John Wick trilogy and then go, you know what? I'm going to take on all of Al-Qaeda. Because I've seen how to shoot all these different guns. I just set it in this corner. I'll run over here and I'll start shooting and I'll do all this stuff. You might be able to do that with your Nerf guns and your eight-year-olds, but the minute somebody starts shooting back, all that crap vanishes. And that's what happens in life. We go to church, we sit in a sermon, we don't have a clue where it came from, and then we walk out, I have got my armor, and then we're running for the hills because we have no idea why we're taking hits and we can't fire back. It's no different than the guy who never practices martial arts and decides to watch the UFC and thinks he can throw arm bars on everybody and decides to go out and save the world to the vigilante. Doesn't work. But if you spend ten years Training in firearms. And then you watch John Wick, and he does this cool little thing where he flicks the gun when he kicks that mag out of the handgun. And you go, wait a minute. The handgun, when the mag falls, that's gravity fed. And if I flick it just a little bit, that'll send centrifugal force that helps pull it and clear it from the the firearm. And then as I swing it back, that's actually getting me in line biomechanically to load in that lock and load. And now I'm back on target and I continue to fire as my hand comes down, now you might actually be able to do something that you saw in a movie because you've trained it. Or if you've trained on the martial arts for 10 years and you see somebody throw in a slick armbar and then you go to the mats and you try it, you can probably figure it out. But you're not doing it day one. And that's what we seem to believe in today's world. If I can pick up a book on the Bible or if I can watch a sermon, well, lo and behold, I'm good. I don't need to actually read the book. They just told me what it says. It's no different than just watching the crap on TV and thinking you can do it. I'm just saying. So, every time you're reading, every time you're studying, you are sharpening that edge. You're practicing that swing. And at some point, David, all these heroes... You know, Hebrews 11, the wall, the hall of faith, all that stuff. They have all become generals who know the weapons to use, know how to bring them to bear, know what they are used for, and they can use all of those weapons in their arsenal with shocking accuracy to save lives. That's what we're aiming for. But we were never actually promised this would be easy. Never. In fact, here's the sales pitch. John 16, 33, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be a good cheer. I've overcome the world. If you really think about it, that's not really cheery for while we're here. Hey, by the way, you're, you're going to have a whole lot of problems, but in the end it'll be good. It just might suck while you're here. But follow me. I've got a plan. All right. And he continues on. Matthew 10, And you will be hated for, by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. You wouldn't buy a used car from the man. He's telling you everything that's wrong with it. But the end is well worth it. Because he's being honest. In fact, I worked midnights for 10 years and I never understood... People are selling Miracle Spring water for $50 at 2 o'clock in the morning, and it's paying off people's homes and cars. You know, you just send this crazy pastor $50, he'll send you a bottle of water, and I don't know if you drink it or you throw it all over your house or whatever you do, but amazingly, people's cars and houses are being paid off. And people are still buying this crap. It's tap water in a bottle that this charlatan is selling you for $50 because people inherently want to believe that God will bless them. Problem is, they wouldn't be selling it at 2 o'clock in the morning if it was actually paying off people's homes and cars. First off, they wouldn't be giving it to you to begin with because they're selfish. The same people who will tell you, God wants you to live your best life. He wants peace. He wants you to be, he wants you to be rich. Well, he wants you to be faithful. And we just looked at the shield last month, and we said, hey, it's the door. The root word is door, which means when you pick up the shield you close the door to attack. When you put down the shield of faith, you open the door to attack. The shield is a muscle, more so than a piece of wood. Because as it's tested, it's torn down, and when it gets to that near-breaking point and God comes in and does a miracle that you could never even see coming, you learn to trust Him, and it grows back stronger and thicker. You don't have to buy miracle spring water. Because he never promised you that your house was going to be paid off or that things were going to go well. What we are selling people is the next slide here. It's not a pleasure cruise to heaven. Man your battle stations because we are on a battleship. That's what he said. But we go to church so that we can hear that everything's going to go well. In the end, they will give in to deceiving doctrines of demons because they will go to the doctrine that it tickles their ears. Next slide is where I start to give you some of my battle verses. Okay? Because if, if Jesus took three swings at him, now I, I admit two of them were defensive, how many is it going to take us? Because if you think you're going to get it done in one, look at who it was. And if you're going to hit somebody, they always tell you to hit them as hard as you can, because if you don't, you hit them 50%, you give them hope that they can win that fight. And that hope can overcome a whole lot of things. But if when you strike, you break things that you hit, all of a sudden, the willingness to continue in this combat situation goes away. And it seems the only thing that Satan actually fears is the true word of God and the presence of God. So if you're going to swing the sword, swing it. But don't swing some stick like a crazy person, because once Satan gets done laughing at you, he's going to cut you in half, because a wooden stick ain't going to stop crap. So here's one I go to quite a bit. Now, I admit, this is kind of after the, after the, the screw-up, because you're not saying this one beforehand, but if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Because what happens? You fail, then the enemy goes, you're not good enough. You can't actually be a Christian. Christians don't do that. And we start to go, "My, well, I, I might not be. I, I got to go, what, what, what do I got to do? the rapture happens now, I'm screwed. I'm going to be here with everybody else. I'm going to be that guy in the left-behind series who's throwing a tennis ball or whatever that is in the sanctuary going, I knew your word. I didn't believe it. And you start to panic. It's not by works. He's right, you're not good enough, but I hate to break the news to you, you're still not good enough, you will never be good enough, and you weren't good enough, so tell him that. I was never good enough, it's Jesus' righteousness, that's how I got here in the first place, by admitting I wasn't good enough, so continue to tell me that, that's fine, I'm still not good enough. Don't listen to it. Another one I do here is 2 Corinthians 10.5. Casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, Bringing every thought into captivity and obedience of Christ. When you hear the next best thing that comes out, you have to filter it through the Bible. Bringing all thoughts into the captivity and obedience of Jesus. And oh, by the way, your professors who are selling some of this crap don't like bringing down arguments and every high thing because they exalt themselves over it, but you can't. But we allow it when we start chasing it because it sounds nice. How about 1 Corinthians 10, 13? No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able. But with the temptation will also make a way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. This says you can get out of any temptation. Nothing can overcome you. It's right in line with what he said for the shield. Remember, you shall quench all the fiery darts of the enemy. Not some. What do we do? We don't take the way out because the way out most times when the temptation comes is at the beginning. It's not once you're down that path of playing with it because we we like to play with things. We think, oh, I can, it's not too bad right now. I can sort of just see how this goes and and then I'll pull back. The Bible says what you should do is you should take out the sword of the word, plunge it in, take out both lungs, the heart, pull it back out and then walk on. That's not what we do. If you look at Proverbs 4, 14 and 15, do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it. Pass on. If I were to write something to try to get your attention, I put it in bold, I underline it a few times, I throw an exclamation mark, I change colors. In the Bible they repeat. And here are is a whole lot of repetition. Because if you don't notice it, most of the warning signs that we see that point out danger are here. And then I've highlighted them here. Do not enter. That's the path of the wicked. Don't even go on the path. Pass by. If you do get on the path, if you do decide you're going to go that far, do not walk in the way of evil. Don't start down the path. Then we wonder, why, why, how did I get here? Well, you got here because you decided to walk down the path. He told you not to. You're passing all these signs. Do not enter. Do not walk. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it. Pass on is also a warning that you shouldn't be there. And then we go, God must not be real because he didn't protect me. We gave you about 80 signs that you stubbornly walked on past. It's your fault. Time to come back. We don't like to hear these things because then it's no longer his fault. We can't just cast it on him. He'll take it, but we have some ownership to deal with. You don't want to get hooked. See, if you go to James 1, 12 through 15, we're going to look at the first part of this one. And it says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. Endures temptation. That means like you have to go through it and continuously go on until it's like dragging into you. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. Nor does he himself tempt anyone. Remember Job? Was Job tempted by God? No. Who went out and tempted him? The devil, with permission, and only went as far as he was allowed. Huh. The next part is what I call the firing train of sin. There's a thing called a firing train. If you're building a bomb, you have to have each one of these parts in order for the bomb to go off. You remove any part, the bomb just sits there. This next one is the firing train of sin. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. That word enticed is the only place in the Bible it's used. It's actually a hunting and fishing term, meaning to lure one from a place of safety to be snared or hooked. It's in fact the point where you are like a car to a tow truck. You no longer get to decide where you are going. You got to decide whether you got hooked up but you're no longer in charge of where you're going. And once that happens, then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Stop before you get to death. That's very helpful. Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to his eyes of whom or him to whom we must give an account. It's kind of hard to think of that and then continue down your wicked path because he knows you're not the kid with the cookie who gets caught by the parent and goes, I was just picking it up, it fell. I'm like, oh, okay, Johnny, Johnny just picked it up. It was falling. No, Jesus goes, no, you weren't. You took it, you were going to eat it. And he has all the evidence he ever needs to convict you. In fact, everybody who stands before him will have absolutely no argument in that day. They have a ton now. They will not argue in that day. Then we ask, I'm watching what's going on in our country, and we just seem to, like, let anybody come in. Oh, You come in through the airport, you can't carry stinking nail clippers, but you come in through the southern border, you can bring an RPG if you'd like. Yeah, just come on in. Whatever you like. Why is this happening to us? We don't like it, but 2 Chronicles 7.14, that says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. The problem is not the atheist. The problem is not the Muslim, the Buddhist, the Hinduist, anybody. We are the problem. We are what's gone wrong with our country because we refuse to stand up and confront anything that is counter to God. We just sit there because we have to be kind, right? No. No. That's something interesting that you need to learn is Jesus wasn't nice. Jesus loved everybody. But he offended people to the point that they killed him because he loved them. If somebody's walking down the street with a noose around their neck and getting close to the thing getting tight and they go, do you like my necklace? You don't go, yeah. Yeah, I do. You tell them, no, that's not a necklace. That's a noose. Stop walking. Stop walking. I don't know if anybody's familiar with Penn Gillette. he's an absolute atheist he is the big guy in Penn and Teller that talks look it up on YouTube but he has a quote I absolutely believe him and I agree with him 100 percent it goes something like this because I don't have it here before me he said you know he tells a story about a guy who came up to him and talked to him after a show he goes he was a very nice guy didn't stand out to me he came back the next night to my show and he said I'd like to hand you a Bible and he talked to me a little bit about God and Jesus, but he didn't, he didn't push, and he was very honest and very nice, and, you know, he proselytized to me, knowing I'm an atheist, but I wasn't offended by it because he was, he was honestly a nice person, and he was being nice, and he wasn't trying to push his thoughts on me. He was just, in his eyes, he was trying to help me. And then you have to realize, if you're a Christian and you're not proselytizing, how much do you have to hate somebody? Because if I'm somebody who sees you standing in the road and a truck coming, and I tell you there's a truck coming, which is eternity in hell, and I know how everlasting life is, and I just don't tell you the truck is coming, I would tell you the truck is coming. And at some point, I would jump and grab you and haul you to the ground out of the way to save you. And if you believe everlasting life is capable and applicable, how much more important is that? This is from an atheist. Sometime read Leviticus 26. It's the chapter on blessings and judgment and retribution. And one thing you'll see in there is, When his people, who are called by his name, so if you think it's not talking about us, he literally just said it twice. If my people who are called by my name, he says, when you don't do that, I'll I'll make your, I'll stop raining. I'll I'll make your crops fail. I'll take the fathers out of the house. I'll empty the cities. I'll have animals attack you. you're still not listening to me, I'll give you leaders that hate you, and I'll open your borders until the alien comes in and takes your food and nothing else return to me and I will heal your land we aren't past the point of no return it may seem like it we are not but if you look at New York City they're now kicking kids out of schools to house migrants who don't belong here because they came here illegally and then they say they didn't break the law but you can't put illegal in front of that and make it legal come in legally no problems from anybody even the illegal immigrants are saying Close the borders, because they see the people who are coming with them. A lot of them are decent people who want a better life, but a lot of them are military-aged men who come in here and want to attack the United States and our way of life. How about Psalm 103.12? As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. First off, there's a difference between sin and transgression. Sin is something that you do that offends him. Transgression is something you do knowing it offends him and not caring and doing it anyway. He says east from west. That's pretty important too. Because if I travel north, how far do I travel north until I'm going south? Just to the North Pole. And then I don't even change direction and I'm already going the other way. But if I'm heading west... Messing crap up in my life. Sailing on into the sunset, right? If I was a sailor, they had a term. It was an emergency term. And if they yelled this term, it meant we need to turn the boat 180 degrees. No questions asked. There's something we might hit. Hey, we're going the wrong way. Whatever it is, it's dangerous. We're going the other way. Do you know what that word was? They would go, repent! They'd turn around 180 degrees and go the other way. That's where we get the word repent. It's not the, hey, I'm going to grind you down, stand on the corner and yell at you, repent. I agree. Some of those things are actually spot on, but they should be standing in the church, not on the corner. It's an archery term that we use for sinner. When they would fire an arrow, the guy down there at the target end, when it didn't hit the bullseye, would yell, sinner, because you missed the bullseye. And the guy didn't go, well, I'll show you, sinner. No, it's just we're using terms from the times. So, as you're going west, if you repent, spin that thing around, and head east, how far do you go east before you go west? Never happens. And so, your sin will never find you. Because remember, your sin is the judgment into whether or not you get into eternity. That's what Jesus took. Remember, all things are allowed, are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. I'm allowed to smack myself in the hand with a mousetrap. It's not really beneficial. That's what he's saying about sin. Once once I take it, I took it past, present, and future. And If I took all that, there's nothing that can separate you. So once saved, always saved. You know, putting a gun to your head, it really isn't going to like, doesn't make you an open-minded person. It just makes you possibly a vegetable. Because it's appointed to you a day to die. Don't take that into your hand and be God. That's the problem with suicide. You play God. And your free will trumps His plan. That's the problem with what happened in the garden. That's the problem with what we do with sin in our life. So the question is, where is your armor? If right now, Satan walked up, brought the battle to your doorstep, is your armor back at home? Because if it is, it's doing you no good. It's not something you can leave at home. You have to be ready for the fight. Because you don't know when that fight's coming. And I guarantee you, he's not going to pick the best time for you. Jesus has won the war, but we are to fight the good fight. He tells us in Revelation to hold firm. Hold firm. Hold fast what you have until I come. That word hold fast actually means to grip with a death grip that you could not let go even if you wanted to you are incapable of letting go. Hold fast to what you have. What do you have? Well, you have a sword. And if you put that down because you think you found something better, in that moment you are defenseless. If you put your shield of faith down because you think you found something better, in that moment you're defenseless. You have him. Everything else is a situation. And that's when we lose faith, when we focus on our situation and not our Savior. Because if you believe God is who He says He is, then every blade of grass you passed on your way in, He is running every molecule in there. He's moving every molecule in every drop of water, everything of air, everything and anything that you can think of, He is controlling, and it is taking far less mental power for God than it is for you that you've been breathing for the last hour and not been thinking about. Because that is God. You're not going to overwhelm him. First off, he already knows what you're doing, what you're going to think, and how it's going to turn out. And the crazy thing that blows my mind is that, had you done something different, he knows where that would have went to. Don't play paper, rock, scissors with God. You're going to lose. He says, just trust me. Have faith. He's not looking for you to do the right thing, because when you do the right thing, you're earning works, right? You think you're something that you're not. You're walking into that nicely painted white room with an oily rag and going, look, Father, I'm here to wash the walls. And if you're doing it in faith, he goes, awesome. I'll paint it again later. And we walk away just like, I did the greatest thing in the world. I'll clean that up. See, I did good, because I had faith. But if you come in with white paint, and you just make a mess, you're not helping. We think we are doing more than we are doing. All he wants is faith, because it's then that you can hear his still, small voice. Then you can walk, because you're in his word, because that's how he's going to talk to you, because that's how David prayed to him, because he knew it, and he trusted it. Faith and love will cover a multitude of sins, because it's your faith that got you Jesus in the first place. Questions? (laughs) Answers. All right. Anybody online? Questions? Eric, you seeing anybody? I can only see a few. Hearing none. March 5th. Next slide.